December NICPEED APE Collaborative. Um, we've been for th with the membership subcommittee very happy with the APE Collaborative thus far. We've been getting really strong <clears throat> attendance in person. Usually around 50, some will join in with our Zoom session. Um, with that, we go live on Facebook and often we get at least another hundred who will watch on the Facebook page. And in addition, we will have this session recorded onto Scott's What's New in Adapted Physical Education podcast. And we usually get around 400 or so views on the podcast. So thank you all very much for listening in on all these uh, hot topics in Adapted PE. Today, our schedule will entail about an hour. We'll have Tanya Moore who will present on the CARE R2. After that, Dr. Dale Ulrich will present on the TGMD3 validate, validation and eligibility decisions. After both speak, then we'll have a follow-up about 10 minutes of Q&A with both speakers. So thank you again in advance to Dale and Tanya for their uh, expertise and time. Thanks of course to the NICPE membership subcommittee and that would be uh, Dr. Amanda Young here at Long Beach State, Dr. Scott McNamara, University of New Hampshire, Heidi Ambrosius at Moreno Valley USC, and I'm Dr. Melissa Bittner from Long Beach State. Our first presenter today, Tanya Moore, who is the PE and Health Coordinator at LACO, Los Angeles County Office of Education. She was the SCAPE or State Council on Adapted Physical Education Chair uh, last year. She is the CAPERD president-elect. She was part of the CARE R2 writing team. She is part of the California Department of Education Physical Fitness Test Panel of Experts, which I know several of you know some of the what's happening in California with regard to assessment right now. And she has provided professional learning development to thousands of individuals in physical education, APE, and comprehensive health education. So at this time, I will let Tanya go ahead and share screen and present on the CARE R2, which I was speaking with Tanya <clears throat> before the presentation. And this actually was one of the assessments that I was very pleasantly surprised when I uh, came to California. And uh, the CARE R2 is a great uh, assessment, a great secondary assessment. And I really look forward to everyone hearing more about it because I really do think that uh, it's a, a really strong assessment and be a great addition to your you know, assessment package. So Tanya, thank you so much. The floor is yours. Awesome. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you so much, Michelle, for this uh, wonderful welcome. Um, like Melissa said, my name is Tanya Moore. I come from Los Angeles County Office of Education where um, we have 80 school districts with over 1.5 million uh, students. And so um, today I'm really here to just kind of uh, help you dip your toes into what the CARE R2 is and kind of what it represents. So the question we get all the time about CARE R2 is, is it considered a standardized assessment? So um, just to cut to the chase, it is 
not considered a standardized assessment. It is an amazing assessment as a secondary tool. Um, the CARE Art original writing team was comprised of adaptive physical education teachers and physical therapists. And they really were creating and analyzing all of the other assessment tools out there, including the TGMD. So we were really looking at all the other standardized assessments and creating age equivalents. So I'll, I'll get more into that in a little bit. The adaptive physical education specialists use this curriculum to um, conduct criterion reference assessments for the purpose of identifying these age equivalents in all different aspects of motor skill abilities. So this can be used as a secondary assessment tool, but also really helping to identify um, appropriate goals and objectives for the IEP. Reliability and construct validity measure can only be established through research studies, as we know. So we're always looking for uh, doctoral students who are kind of willing to take this on as part of their research. So if anybody's willing and able, um, please let me know. That would be amazing. The manual. Basically, we have scoring protocols and we also have manuals. It really is um, divided and measuring and assessing gross motor skills, object control skills, physical fitness, perceptual motor, and fine motor skills. What's really um, kind of amazing about this assessment is it captures a comprehensive lens to assessment for our students in adaptive physical education, including fitness, as we all know, is often overlooked. This is just a cross-section out of the protocol um, and the manual, what it looks like. On the left-hand side, you see a, a header that says item. Basically what this is saying is this represents the physical education component. Um, when you see the item number, this is really kind of um, one of the questions we get often and not understanding the difference between the item number and the number number. The number is listed in developmental and sequential order. This is really important because as you're um, reporting your scores, you know where to start each time you're reassessing. With the curriculum item, that is literally saying, hey, this is our performance criteria. This is saying uh, providing suggested performances in parentheses with specific criteria that was not found possibly in literature review. So the example you see next to the green arrow is saying, the student will be able to walk while holding onto furniture five to 10 feet. You'll see on the right-hand column, age norms. So those are other assessments tools that we did a review on that provided age equivalents from that particular assessment tool. So you'll see Payne and Isaac's 10 months of age, students should be able to walk while holding onto furniture five to 10 feet. The help says 9.5 to 13 months. The Brigands three, 10 to 12 months, the Kuntz 10 to 10 months. So this is kind of the, um, the way it was done. 
the examiner's instructions is giving you as the practitioner very specific directions on how to administer that particular skill. The behavioral statement. This provides a flexible format for a potential goal or objective. So this is really an, an impress, impressive piece to add or create or modify goals, of, goals and objectives if that child is either progressing with that skill or has not mastered that particular skill yet. The age norms. This is the part that I think is really helpful, especially for parents and guardians. When you're speaking in age norms, this is something that um, most often parents understand. Um, and this is a language that e is easier to communicate to um, parents and other uh, parts of the, the IEP team. So this age norm is a reference for the specific developmental age for that particular motor performance. Sometimes the range is cited with references to the assessment um, and sometimes it will reference the onset of the skill as well. The age norm also may have a decimal and that number before the decimal represents the years and after the decimal represents the months. So when we look at the protocol, this in a perfect world would follow the student over grade spans. So your recording directions really provide you with marking each assessment date using a different color indicated. So you'll see where the green arrow is pointing. It suggests black. So you're using a black um, pencil or black marker and you write the date. If you were to use a red pen or pencil, you would write the date. So as you're going through the protocol using different colors, you can see the progress over grade spans over years. So color coding each assessment date allows the assessor, the practitioner, as well as the IEP team to really track the results. Um, and it's a little bit more feasible uh, visually as well. Another thing that I liked um, when I was teaching adaptive physical education was um, the levels of support and the mastery levels. So you will mark rudimentary, emerging, functional or mastery. And it tells you, it gives you um, suggestions of, you know, 20% is considered rudimentary. So if the student's able to do it one out of five occurrences, that would be considered rudimentary. For functional, if you're looking at three out of five, that would be considered um, functional as well. Emerging would be two out of five and mastery would be considered four out of five trials. So this is something that was really helpful, especially if you want them to improve on that particular skill item. Levels of support. This is, um, in my opinion, very important and very critical, especially if you're considering um, mod severe students. Um, we're talking about the levels of support and they should be documented on this protocol report because it indicates where they're functioning and how much support, what level of support or prompting do they require to um, basically successfully perform that, uh, that skill. 
The goal is to have the student obviously least restrictive environment and as independent as possible while maintaining safety measures. So for instance, student may require partial physical prompting when batting off of a batting tee, so not to lose balance. That would maintain their safety as well as as much independence as possible. Assessment administration. We should be assessing all areas of need or suspected need when it comes to um, adaptive physical education. The CARE R2 is flexible on where you can start your assessment. This is quite often we get a question about that. Where do we, where do we start? You do not need to complete all the items within each motor component. You don't have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Instead, you want to start where you, um, the age norm where you think they should start and you move on from there. So let's give an example. If you have seen the student walk across the room and sit themselves in a chair, you would want to start there with your assessment. You would not need to assess back in curricular items or back in time. Instead of um, you want to go where you suspect they would begin or suspect that particular age and begin. So I'll give you another example. If you have a child who is five years of age, you might consider starting at five years of age and see what they can perform for that particular age level. You need to determine the mastery level for each item. For example, three out of three childs four out of five trials, and so on. If the student has mastered a skill on the protocol, what you do is you circle the item number and you date it. You date it. If the student is unable to perform the item, basically what you do is you underline the item number and record the level of prompting um, in the protocol. It is really important to differentiate between underlining and circle. You always wanna date it so you know um, kind of where the progress is headed. You always refer to the age norm reference in the manual to see if a specific curriculum item is referenced by another assessment. If you have given the assessment as your secondary assessment, you can use the score from the other assessment So you do not need to administer that curriculum item twice. So let me uh, refresh this. It is recommended the CARE R2 is always a secondary assessment because it is not considered standardized. However, you'll see in the manual, it references other standardized assessments. For example, we reference the TGMD two quite often. So Dale's going to talk about the three and um, that process. So what do we do? How do we start scoring? You want to do what is considered top-down method and really think about the chronological age of the student. If the student is five years old, you want to start at five years of age and see what they're capable of performing. If the child is unable to perform age equivalent, then you decrease the actual item number and begin there. When you 
our scoring, like I said before, you underline the item number when the skill is in progress. You circle the item number and date it when it is mastered. Obviously, both circling and underlining will uh, coincide with the color coding. By tracking the dates, you'll really see kind of the progress of the student. But more importantly, you won't have to reassess that particular item number because it's already been mastered. So that's really helpful. So I know this is a really, really quick, fast, open thing, but I believe we're gonna save questions for the end um, after Dale has presented. So what I wanted to do is just give you um, access. I'll make sure it's in the chat, my contact information, and I'll give you access to kind of what the CARE R2 provides as well in the chat. So thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you so much, Michelle. I appreciate it. Great, thank you. Thank you much, Tanya. Uh, much appreciated. Our next speaker, Dr. Dale Ulrich, Professor Emeritus, University of Michigan. He's had a 48 year career as an APE teacher and faculty member. And he recognized early in his career that there was a critical need for more high quality motor skill development assessment devices and research. He has trained and continues to train thousands of professionals around the world to administer and score the TGMD. Much of his research has been influenced by parents of infants and children with developmental disabilities telling him what they need to know. And he has mentored 18 doctoral and postdoctoral students who are now in faculty positions in North America and Asia. So at this time, I'll pass it over to Dr. Dale Ulrich. Thank you very much. Uh, good to see everybody. Uh, the question I have for you before I start, um, I've kind of lost access to uh, screen sharing. Oh, my bad. Okay, I'm I'll get sure, it to you. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is, but it usually is very obvious. Just click on it. Thank you all for inviting me to talk. Um, this was one of those things that I've really been turning uh, down presentation options on Zoom. I'm just really tired of doing things on Zoom, but this is one that certainly I enjoy making and uh, hopefully you'll have a lot of questions at the end. Um, but I wanna thank all of the uh, Nick Peed uh, group that uh, invited me. I look at the names and I'm surprised how many of the names I know unless you're real young, then I probably don't if you're a student. But my task today is to talk in general terms about what the validation process is and key there on the word process. Uh, it's not a small study that you do. It is a long-term series uh, or process of doing many, many different studies. And then any time that you make a serious revision of a test, whatever test it is, you've got to revalidate many of the things. And so my task today is to share with you within the next 15 minutes of what that looks like. But also one of the things that bothers me relative to assessment, there's many things, but one thing is you're never, ever, ever given enough time to do it. 
And so that really born into many of the things that I took into consideration in designing this test many, many years ago, back in the very early 1980s, is I knew you didn't have time. Now, did I assume that that would always be the case? No, I thought we'd get better, but it hasn't. You don't have enough time. And so um, one of the things that, the other thing that bothers me is frequently major decisions with tests are made on observed scores. So in other words, you use a TGMD or any other test, doesn't matter, and you come up with a score and you use that to go to the norms to find out whether the child is eligible. Well, one of the things I'm gonna talk about late in this presentation is uh, there's always error in observed scores and we don't know exactly what the child's true score is. So I'm gonna talk briefly about using confidence intervals as a unit of measurement and to use that confidence interval to make your decision. And you'll see that'll make a lot more sense in, a, in five or six or seven minutes. Okay. Now the basic process, uh, I'm, again, I don't have much time. So I'm gonna cut to the chase here. Uh, the first step is to validate the content. Uh, how did I do this back in the early 1980s? I used a lot of uh, professional teachers, elementary, adaptive physical education teachers. I used motor development textbooks. I used professors who specialize in motor development. Those were the experts that I used. And I came up what, with what I thought were gross motor skills frequently taught in elementary or adaptive physical education but that doesn't mean that those all have to be the content. So I used the, uh, uh, the expert panel, they had to meet certain criteria. And then I asked them to rate the skill. I gave them a long list of skills that were potentially that I could use. And I used a, uh, an agreement index. If they agreed with the skill that this is one that should be on the test, and is taught in uh, physical education, score it as a one. If they disagree, score it as a minus one. If they weren't sure, score it as a zero. And then you can come up with an index very easily. And then only use those skills that get at least 80% agreement. In other words, 80% of the people marked it up with a one. Why not 100%? Well, we all know those of us that are professionals for quite a few years know that experts cannot agree on anything at 100% level. And so don't set your standards at 100%, set it lower at 75, 80% and be happy with that. So that's what I did. And so both the skills and the performance criteria were subjected to that kind of process. Now, do I have to redo that content? Uh, evaluation or validity every time I modify it? No, not unless I make a major uh, change, which I haven't. I've added a skill, subtracted a skill, changed, made the performance criteria easy to un easier to understand. So I'm assuming that during those early 1980s, the content validity remains very, very good. Um, 
Secondly, is to establish the internal structure of the test. Okay, I've got the skills now that the experts agree with. I've got the test items that the, that the experts uh, scored high. Uh, you've got to establish the internal structure of the test. And uh, the question there is how well do the items relate to each other? In other words, if we're looking at ball skills, the ball skills should relate to each other. They're all ball skills. So if you're poor in, ball, in one ball skill or two ball skills, you're probably not very skilled in many of them or vice versa. So there should be a relationship. And so you can calculate what's called a coefficient alpha, very easy statistic in SPSS or any of the major statistical packages is you subject your data and ask the, uh, tell the computer to do a coefficient alpha and it, it will give you an index. And it's interpreted similar to a reliability in the sense that we're shooting for at least 0.7. Um, what I did at that time early on is I wanted to verify that it was working well. So, so I threw in one or two skills that I knew would not get a good relationship. And guess what? It caught those. So in other words, when those one or two skills were in the locomotor or ball skills uh, subtest, the uh, uh, coefficient alpha was lower. If I took them out, they were higher. So that convinced me that, that people, uh, that the process was working. And uh, so I was satisfied. But again, anytime you make major renovations, you gotta redo that kind of an analysis, which is quite easy. The one point I have put down here is sample size is important in validating any test. Um, if you only use 20, 25, 30, 35 children, that's a pilot test. That will give you some evidence that if you do a major appropriate validation study, you should get good results. But a, a sample of 25, 30, 35 children especially when you have a range of ages, that's not serious. Uh, that's just a pilot test. So keep that in mind. And also I have the, the note up here, the uh, asterisk that all evidence, treat all of these studies as though you're presenting to a panel of judges and you're, pre you're presenting evidence for validity, reliability, and so forth. They've got to agree that it, it meets those standards. So all evidence that you collect should be submitted to a peer-reviewed journal. If it's not, in other words, when I first started this, I guarantee the first thing I did was go to AFERD and present the results. Okay, that's a start. But then I had to come home after getting feedback and submit the work for publication to peer review. Everything is based on peer review. If it's not subjected to peer review, review, don't trust it. Thirdly is the degree to which uh, there are relationships with other variables. So in other words, when we're talking about gross motor skills, uh, there's gotta be other constructs that are somewhat related, such as other tests of gross motor skills is a good example. There are multiple tests of gross motor development out there. Okay, test a, a sample of individuals on both and there should be a significant correlation. Um, and so it, sometimes it's difficult 
when I first did this test, it was, it was hard finding another appropriate test. That's the reason I developed it. Um, and so sometimes you can use uh, expert panel reviewers. Okay, so they can go into your, your physical education classes and rank the students, rank the students that they observe performing locomotor skills, rank them from one to whatever number of children, and then use those ranks to subject to a correlation with your test. And so there's many ways of doing this. You just have to figure it out, but it has to be done. Um, you could also subject the subtest or the total test to variables that you would assume are not at all related to gross motor development. So in other words, now I'm trying to think of an example here. There's gotta be some such as uh, uh, a construct such as, uh, I don't wanna say leg strength because leg strength may be related, but it shouldn't be as related as a motor skill test. So look for constructs that you would assume are not related to gross motor skill development and then test them on both. And you should see that there's a very low correlation. Now, one of the things that I've always done because technically the TGMD is a developmental test. And so there should be a strong relationship with age. So that's a, that is a construct age uh, where there should be a very high relationship. And sure enough, there is. And all you have to do also is look at the norms and the means across age all get a little bit higher. Well, okay, that helps to, to verify that there is a relationship to age. Uh, fourthly is reliability or the amount of measurement error. Please keep in mind, no matter how good you are, I still make errors. I get occasionally when administering the TGMD, I get a distraction uh, or, I, or something I, can't see with my glasses or something. Well, that's a distraction. And so I guarantee the reason I criticize at the beginning using an observed score, you should always assume there is going to be some measurement error in that observed score. It could be positive. You could have a higher score than the child really got or should get or a lower score. It should be a negative error. And so all tests have measurement error. And so when you're designing and standardizing tests, always tell the computer program to calculate the standard error measurement, the SEM. That in essence informs us on the average amount of error in a child's test score. So use that. Now, hopefully that result is small. I get, I get questions when I present this into my undergraduate statistics class in movement sciences, well, how, how big is too big or how small is adequate? There aren't standards that I've ever found. What I suggest is whatever the standard error of measurement is, let's just say the standard error of measurement for locomotor skills for three-year-olds is one. And in fact, it is. But the average score that children who are three years of age is about 20, okay, a score of one versus SEM versus the typical score of 20 is not large. It could be better, but it's not large. And so use the typical score that children get at that age as 
an index to compare your SEM to and then make a judgment. So again, I've, I've talked about the SEM is an estimate of typical amount of error in a test score for a very specific group of individuals. So in other words, I would expect the SEM to be different for kids with DCD, for kids who have Down syndrome, for children diagnosed with ASD, and for kids with typical development. They're gonna all be different. And so you should actually calculate those. Now I'm gonna give you a project for those of you that are doctoral students or master's students, here's a project for you. Take any test that you want and look at the SEM, test a group of children in, in multiple subgroups and calculate the SEM. No test developer reports those. They report a general SEM for age, but that doesn't mean it's equal for kids of that age with ASD. So there's a project for you and one that's very publishable. Uh, I won't give you that classical measurement model. I, I need to speed up here. But again, assuming that there's always some measurement error, I've identified four very common sources of error that we get in adaptive physical education assessment. One is a child's lack of effort. How many times have I tested an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old who's typically developing on locomotor skills, and they think it's silly for them to gallop, skip, and hop? And so they don't give full effort. Well, that's gonna cause error. They probably could do it correctly if with, appropriate, with appropriate effort, but they don't, so they get a lower score. That's measurement error. So our job as a test administrator is try to motivate them as much as we can. Test administrators lack of training in administering the test. Um, I've never, there have been some studies looking at new users versus skilled users of the TGMD. And they generally, skilled users are better, of course. But again, the amount of training that you have and practice should be a priority. Um, and you should evaluate yourself once in a while against other people. Incorrect test scoring. Uh, one of the more common errors I see in people administering the TGMD is they're looking for perfection of the performance criteria, not consistency. So in other words, let's give you a quick example here. We're looking at a child run and we're looking at the performance criteria for correct arm movement. And they're running over 40, 50 feet. And for the first couple of strides, they don't have correct arm movement, but the rest of the time they do, that's a score of one. They were very consistent, but they weren't perfect. Okay, so score, the norms primarily were collected on consistency, not perfection. And so I know a lot of people make an error on that. Uh, another good example, a child starts to gallop and they mess up the first two repetitions of the gallop, but the next five, they do it correctly. Now, scored as one. That's consistency. Uh, limited time and distractions. Everybody I know is shaking their head, yes, boy, you're not given enough time. And when that's the case, you're gonna make more errors because you're rushing. You don't have much time or you have a distraction in the gymnasium where somebody yells and you look away and then look back and you miss half the child's performance. So those are four consistent sources of measurement error. 
that will increase the standard error measurement. Okay, so should test developers present tables communicating the SEM by age? Absolutely, they should. Um, I would suspect that it will differ from a three-year-old to an eight or nine or 10-year-old. So present it, you have the data, present the SEM by age. Also, would we expect the SEM to vary at different points on the ability scale? Low skill performers versus high versus medium skill performers. In other words, going back to the last presentation on the care, where you have four different levels, I guarantee if you have a very consistent performer, they probably have less air. If you have somebody who's very inconsistent at the lowest level, they may have more air, but we don't know that because we never ask that question. So again, that's a good research project for somebody. Okay, um, confidence intervals, and then I'm done. Uh, every, every major test publisher, I'm talking ProEd, I'm talking all the major test publishers. Now in the norm tables, they have confidence intervals already inserted into the tables for you. So I suggest you use it. It's very easy. So the confidence interval is a score band around an observed score. You get the observed score, you administered the test and you have the observed score, ball skills, locomotor skills, or the gross motor quotient, doesn't matter. <coughs> but that is only an estimate of the child's truth score. We don't make, we have no idea what the child's truth score is. Uh, and But you have to use a score to make a diagnostic decision. Uh, we never know what the true score is. So most teachers use the observed score for one reason, lack of time, lack of energy. Um, and so I don't blame them, but I would hope they start using the confidence interval. And I'm going to show you exactly how to do that in a moment. Um, you can calculate confidence intervals at the 68% confidence interval, 95 and 99. Most test developers today use a 90 and 95% confidence interval. If I can get 90% confident, I've located the child's true score as a, as a professional, I'm happy. I would not be happy with a 68%, not if I'm a parent. So most test publishers now insert those at the either the 90 and or 95%. So let's take, for example, the bot, the bot two. And the bot two has a short form. It's a screening test. It's designed to determine whether to subject the child to the whole test, a great purpose. Um, and one of the reasons I'm working right now with, with Kip Webster uh, to, to design a TGMD screener. Uh, so that you could use the screener to determine whether to subject the child to the total test, given the lack of time. And so in this particular case, your decision with the short form is yes or no. Yes, the child has a problem, according to the screener, and should be subjected to the whole test, or no, they're fine. And so let's take, for example, with the bot, the age range that they present is for children age four to seven. Children age four to seven on the short form has a standard error measurement of 4.03. My first reaction is, hmm, that sounds like it might be fairly high. 
the child's raw score on the screener was 36%. The standard for eligibility or to receive the full test is 35. So your decision based on their raw score, nope, almost, but no cigar. You're not gonna subject the child to the total test because they just missed out. Again, that's the raw score. You know there's some error in it, one way or the other. So let's go back to the 95% confidence interval approach. For a child who, who this child that I uh, have the data for is six years, three months, is a male on the short form. Their score was 36%. Okay, 36% plus or minus two standard error measurements. This is the SEM, take two of them, add it and subtract it from their observed score, which I've done here. It gives you a range right here. The range now is their truth score falls within the basically 32 to 40%. Well, that includes the 35. So they should be eligible to receive the full test. And that's what you should make the decision on. Hopefully that makes sense. Again, use the, the confidence interval as though it is a, a unit of measurement. Not, it's not the observed score, but it includes the child's true score. True score could fall anywhere within that range. You don't know. So use that as though you've captured the true score. And guess what? 95% of the time, you're going to be correct. Okay, I think I'm done there. So we'll go back to questions and answers. All right, great. Thank you so much, Dale. That was, that was great. We look forward to the screening form, hopefully coming out soon after that peer review. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Let's go ahead and if you could jump out of share screen and we can open questions up to the field for either Dale or Tanya. Dale, um, I'll, throw a, I'll throw a question out to you, to you first. Um, this came up in conversation last week with, um, with you when Amanda and I were chatting with you. What is the time frame for an assessment to no longer be standardized? Uh, yes. There's, there's a general stand, there are national standards in education, educational and psychological assessment. And generally, the maximum would be 20 years because that is a whole generation. I guarantee we're gonna find with this COVID and kids being out of school that their performances are probably going down. And so the next time you collect, if you now start it in a couple of years, you're using the TGMD3, which was collected multiple years ago before the COVID, I don't know. You may find that the uh, decisions you make are no longer valid. I don't know, but a maximum of 20 years. Great, and thank you. I see. Again, oh, there's, whenever you have a test that's out there and you see that the norms are very old, you, as an organization, you've got to write the publisher and tell them that you're going to stop using it. That's the only thing that will get them to renorm it. Thank you. Barry? Hey, Dale, um, can you share with the group your 
your thoughts about one of the things, you know, after 40 years, we still don't have a lot of stand. Can you hear me? Okay. I can yeah, hear you. You're good. Yeah. We still don't have a lot of standardized tests. And, and I'm thinking that, you know, we're talking about quite a commitment. We're talking about, you know, over a number of years, one of the things you've really been good at is you've made this commitment for, you know, basically you're talking about a longitudinal study. I mean, you're talking about over many, many years uh, working on an instrument. And I think a lot of like doctoral students or uh, university professors, you know, they worry about getting tenure and mm -hmm. uh, that type of thing. And one of the things I really always respected about you, I mean, this was, I don't know if everybody knows, but the TGMD was kind of an outgrowth of your dissertation, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. So can you talk about that and, and what, what like uh, young professionals could do about this, you know, because they've got that tenure issue in front of them? Have, have two lines of research. Yeah. Um, I had funded research going on from the federal government on infants with Down syndrome for many, right. many years, training them on treadmills. And uh, that was bringing in a lot of money to my university. So they were happy. And so I agree. A lot of times your colleagues who make the decision on tenure and promotion, you've got to have a certain number of publications in higher quality journals. So don't just do assessment. Um, unless you're at a smaller university that, that only count number, then, then it's great. Then it's great. Then as long as you're publishing, they're going to be happy. But an alternative would be to have a more robust line of research where you're actually studying motor development, not from the assessment point of view, but from interventions, for example. I mean, a lot of people today are doing... Uh, high quality interventions with children either at risk or who've been diagnosed with ASD. Carrie Staples is a good example. And I know you're on, uh, you're participating today. And so they do great research and it's got, it's fundable. So hopefully that answers your question, but it sure. is, a, when I first developed this, I didn't think 40 years. Right. But there's always a need for more assessments. Mm -hmm. I would scale them back, not to do everything. So in other words, uh, uh, on the last presentation, I was very impressed by that. But I would have a hard time, Tanya, going in and trying to standardize that. It's so broad that you may want to take a bite out of it and standardize that bite and then go on to the next bite. Um, it's just it, it covers so much material that it's going to be a real challenge to standardize that and get it published by a publisher because they want to see the publications. But I think it has good potential. I, I have a question for Tanya. Uh, I was glad to see that your assess that uh, care assessment has multiple levels. I mean, that's a question I get over 40 years is, is what's available for lower performing children. So you could use yours, the care for lower performing children, but it also affords the use of visual supports or prompts. Right. 
So when I was teaching adapted physical education, I definitely was working with um, mod severe students. So um, mm -hmm. major prompting, right? Major physical support. So the, the question we get a lot about CARE R2 is A, the physical supports and what is the age range? Because Dale's right, you know, there it's such a big, broad topic because we're pulling in every assessment out there for a specific motor task. But when it comes to um, developmental sequence, we're talking about birth to eight years for gross motor. So does mm -hmm. that mean we can't use it for somebody who's 13 years of age? No, not necessarily, because this isn't a standardized assessment. Right. We use it quite often for the mod severe kids because we're we're painting the picture for the parent, the guardian saying, hey, you know what? We do have a 13 year old who is functioning at seven years of age or age equivalent for gross motor skills. So um, I agree 100%. It's, it's definitely trying to paint a picture for that parent, that guardian, as well as the team um, for these age equivalents. So mod severe, it, it's definitely a great assessment tool, secondary for sure. Yeah. Great, thanks Tanya. Michelle, I saw your hand raised quickly or are you good? Okay, next, um, Barry. That's the real strength of the, of the CARE R is that for years we've used it for, for kids that have uh, more severe challenges. And I would say to everybody that that's one of the real strengths of that that assessment instrument. And I would encourage you to look at it from that standpoint. Yeah. Jen? Hi, um, thanks both of you for your presentations and speaking about this. I was, uh, Dr. Ulrich, I was teaching a, I teach the assessment class here at OSU and um, for our Masters of Adapted Physical Education class. And um, my mentor, Dr. J.K. Ewan used to teach it. And he, um, so we, I was teaching at this term and we were going through the performance criteria as they were learning it. And they were saying, so, and I was, I was searching frantically for the form and I found, I was like, okay, so, cause um, I'm not that well practiced on it, but um, you know, we're, they were like, how did these criteria, how did the performance criteria come up? So as we sat there and like went through the motion, okay, overhand through wind up is initiated with a downward movement of the arm. And they were like, what does that mean? I, I would say, you know, cause we all, the teachers, you say T position, step through. Remember when we think of like the general teaching of that skill. So they were looking at this and like, oh, how did they come up with this? And um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that as I take this back to them. And I know and I was telling them, well, it's careful consideration from content experts on how they come up with, these are the four criteria that we're going to evaluate on. But if you can talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Okay, I, I know we're running out of time, but I also, besides looking at books and talking to professionals, went into, in that case, is a classic example, looking at the biomechanics of throwing, the biomechanics of kicking, the biomechanics of running and so forth. But when you do that, you can only use performance criteria that you're confident through research a teacher can observe. So in other words, there are gonna be some performance criteria that are great, 
But I guarantee if you ask the teacher to observe that, they're going to have all kinds of problems observing it. So I had a long list of potential performance criteria for each skill. Went back to the experts and asked them to rate them on two things, whether they feel that they are essential components and whether they think they could be observed in a teaching environment. Thanks. Yeah. That Do was a long a that's where my dissertation came in. And, Do you and, have a, oh, go ahead. No, I, uh, Jen, you may realize that I mentored JK. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a question for you, Dale, from text message via uh, Louise Columna. If using the TGMD on older students, of course, this would make the assessment um, supplementary, it would not be standardized because again, you're not using it within the, the age range. But if they use the raw scores, do you recommend also reporting the confidence intervals? It said they need to use the raw scores because they're no, older than 10.9. Because, because the standard error measurement and confidence interval was, was calculated with the norms. And since your older child is not part of those, you can't. So just use the raw score. Now, okay, I'll, one I'll relay. You could oh, do, one of the things if you could do is if you had 30 children or 40 children that were older, you can test them and calculate the standard error measurement and, and then calculate a confidence interval. Okay, using their actual ages? Using the actual performance that you collected. Okay, great. But, I will relay that just information. One, not just on one child. You'd have to have a sample of children. Yes, and I'm sure that he, yeah, would. Yeah. Great. Um, we've got about one more minute. Any final questions? Any other doctoral students that are involved in this, I can make a suggestion. Take a measurement course in your doctoral degree a basic educational measurement course. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you to Tanya and Dale. That was fantastic. And I would like to announce our next NICPEED APE Collaborative will be in February. So we'll be taking January off for the holiday break, but we are very excited to announce our next session will be on APE funding and grant writing. We will have uh, Dr. Rebecca Lytle from Chico State. She's going to present on OSEP grant writing tips and Danielle Musser from Montrose County School District. And she's going to talk about uh, funding your APE program. So again, great, great, uh, session planned for us here in February. So thank you all very much for attending. Much appreciated. Uh, have a wonderful holiday break and we'll see everyone again in February. Till next time. Thanks all. Thank you.